Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Art attack 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 attack. Here's our fortnightly visual arts review segment, and this fortnight Ty Snaith joins us on the line to talk about an exhibition at Neon Park Gallery, but spread over both sites of Neon Park. Yeah, hi Richard. Nice to be back. Always again, nice to have you with us. Talking the art. Yeah, this is a a rare treat where it's spread across both locations of Neon Park. So I think most of our listeners, I was going to say viewers then, most of our listeners would know Neon Park. So if you don't, there's one in Brunswick in Tinning Street, which is the big giant one. And then there's a smaller one in the city, just off Burke Street. So you can look it up. Maybe if you want to see some some pictures of this show, you can look it up at their website, which is Neon Park with a C, not a K, neonpark.com.au. But this is a bit of a preview, really, Richard, because, as we know, you can't really go and see it in the flesh. And this is one of those shows that you do need to go and see in the flesh. But you know what? I'm being a bit optimistic because I reckon in the next few weeks we will be able to maybe go and make an appointment. I'm just putting that out there as a positive kind of omen, Richard, because I think by the end of October, hopefully, fingers crossed, maybe a couple of people might be able to go into a gallery. What do you reckon? I think there's a good chance of that. Certainly over the next three, four weeks, it seems like we will definitely be moving towards a gradual reopening. I'm not expecting theatres, for example, and large public gatherings uh, until uh, the end of November. But the idea of controlled entry to a gallery, certainly with maybe up to 10 people in a large gallery space respecting social distancing, I think there's every chance of that. Yeah, so this is a little bit of a hopeful preview because I was lucky enough to be dropping off something out at Neon Park in Brunswick and I sort of popped my head in and caught Jamie O'Connell installing this new show and it is very much a spatial in-the-round kind of experience so you can have a look at the documentation shots online but and I do believe that there's going to be a video up soon so when I talk about the video you can eventually you'll be able to see a snippet of that but I do encourage anyone to put this in their diary as the first thing they go and see when they break out and like put on their nice shoes and go to a gallery because it is something you need to experience so I was really lucky to just be able to pop my head in as I was there with my permit and picking up some stuff and saw Jamie and Jeff from Neon Park and had a chat about this work and it It's so beautiful, Richard. It's such a poetic, simple, but sort of strange show, which is my my mix of a really nice art experience. What did I say? Poetic, simple, and strange. That's that's how I would... It's a good combo. Yeah, and it is continuing, or sort of abstractly continuing, Jamie O'Connell's interest in sort of early house music from the 80s. And it does... I mean, on first impressions, you don't see that, obviously, but when you first enter the gallery, it's actually a very subtle play on sound and light. So the ceiling panels in Neon Park at Brunswick have been kind of, what would you say, adapted so that they come on in a light sequence. So the the neon lights that are above the panels have been put on a sort of sophisticated timer, I guess you would say, by by the artist, and they, they come on in a sequence to the sound. So the sound is 
is sort of like this repetitive loop of a couple of samples that Jamie has taken and put together. And it, you know what it made me think of? Like a kind of fancy sound for waking up in the morning. It's like quite lighthearted and I'm not going to try and sing it because that would just be really embarrassing. But it, it was just this, it's really uplifting and quite ethereal feeling as you walk into the space. And as you go in, the panels sort of go on with you. So does that make sense, Richard? As, yeah. as you enter the space, they light up. The space lights up as you enter, which is kind of a nice thing to happen. But otherwise, it is empty. And then as you sort of enter the space, you get this feeling like, oh, that's nice. You know, the lights are lighting up for me. And then, and then it goes dark for a bit. And as it, it's not really dark, dark, but it's really interesting. You can sort of see all the irregularities in the plaster, which I enjoyed because... You know, galleries are always this really perfect, white-walled, clean space. And when the lights are a bit wrong, you can see all the lumpy stuff in the plaster. So that, was, that made me chuckle. And then a video comes on. And the video, which is titled the same title as the show, Love Saves the Day. And actually the title, Love Saves the Day, is a number of things. It, it is a music festival in Bristol, but it's also the title of a book on the history of American dance culture by Tim Lawrence. But it was originally the name of these famous loft parties in the 70s where I think there was a lot of experimentation with LSD and the famous DJ David Manusco's Valentine's Day loft party. So I, I assume the title was originally extracted from that kind of history. But it is of... The, the video is of... Bez. Do you know who I'm talking about when I say Bez, Richard? Uh, from the Happy Mondays? Yes. Spot on. You got it. So his name's Mark Berry, but better known as Bez. And he's the, he's not the front man, but I like to think of him as the front man, but he's like the dancer from the Happy Mondays. And he's the weird guy that comes out the front with the maracas. And, and kind of whips um, up the crowd in some ways. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's a crowd whipper. Yeah, sort of. But Jamie was telling me that the original story of Bez was that he was actually the drug dealer and I think he was backstage and the front man said, come on stage with me and dance around a bit. And so that's sort of how he got the gig. And so he's from this, you know, like it's an interesting kind of legacy or story is that you then begin, you become part of the band just by sort of being there. But what Jamie O'Connell has done with this work is he, when Bez was in town, he was lucky enough to sort of set him up and film him in in a band situation, but without any of the other band members. So it's just him in this kind of white room with the instruments set up, mics set up, but no sound. So all you can hear is the shuffling of his feet and like, it's quite abrupt as well. It's quite loud. It's, it's almost what's percussive, you know, like the sound of his feet, almost like tap dancing, but it's just him going through his choreography, like the Bez dance. And when you see him perform live, you do think, oh, well, he's just making that up or he's just some wasted guy dancing around. That was my thoughts anyway. But when you see this video, it really exposes a different side and it makes you think, well, this guy, this is a choreography of sorts, you know. So it's a really fascinating video. I don't know if I'm explaining it very well. Are you getting the picture of this, Richard? I'm starting to. There's a lot that we've got kind of body-activated lighting. We've got sound design. We've got this video. Of Bez. Yeah. It's not quite coming but together it, for me yet. Well, it does all come together because, you know, there's this kind of interest in not just in early dance, like um, the movement, the, the sorry, the house music 
movement, but also in this kind of idea of capitalist society and what's left when we strip away these sort of systems that we have, or as Jamie says himself, what's left when incessant monologues of social media and capitalism finally cease and the perpetual motion is simultaneously static and advancing? What is actually occurring? And so I feel like with that whole sort of system of festivals and parties and all of a sudden, this is what made me think anyway, we've stopped. It's stopped, you know, and I personally miss it a lot. I miss that kind of community of the the crowd and the dancing. And this, this show really made me start thinking about what that means like what is that what is that thing that we need when you when you strip away the band and you strip away the crowd and the need to be there what what do we have left like we have this kind of empty pattern this thing going over this loop reoccurring of capitalism and like yeah these kind of crazy online monologues of social media and it is a it's a really weird poetic comment on that i think richard and there we should talk about the other show as well oh the other site is quite different so the other site is a series of these beautiful light sculptures. So there's three, and they're adapted, uh, I can't remember what he calls them, but they're fluorescent tubes, basically, that have been curved up and down. So if you think of a smiley face, frown or smile, you know what I mean? And the, then the, juxtapose the smiley them. Bit. Yeah, they're sort of like going together. So one going up and one's going down. I don't know how he bends the fluoro tube, but somehow he's managed to bend these fluoro tubes. And they then become these very elegant, light, minimalist sort of light sculptures. But the bottom one is blue and the top one is kind of like a yellow. And so what happens is both like a yin-yang or like a positive and negative or even like a sunrise, sunset or a smile and a frown, they come together in this kind of mauve in the middle, so the light blends together. So, you know, this is also talking about the positive and the negative. One of the works is called Enjoy All the Monsters, and there's another one with the subtitle All Night Porch Light. So there are these kind of takes on, yeah, the positivity and negativity of that culture. Like, you know, imagine what it would have been like taking all that acid and dancing and then imagine the next day. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so you've got these extreme highs and extreme lows. And and in between, you know, there's beds. <laughs> that's the, that is the show. And I actually love it. I probably haven't done it justice because, as I said, I think you really need to experience this show. But I walked away thinking it's a really beautiful, poetic, simple piece of work that isn't, it isn't nostalgic, which is really interesting, because something like this, you know, looking back at that culture, you can get quite nostalgic for what happened during that time, and I think Jamie's done a really good job of extrapolating elements of that out and objectifying it in a way. So, yeah, hopefully it's intrigued you, and you might... um, Go have a look. But um, Once things reopen, fingers crossed. Then, uh, yeah. yeah. So Jamie O'Connell's Love Saves the Day on until the 7th of November at Neon Park Gallery in Tinning Street, Brunswick, and yep. also showing at Neon Park Gallery in the CBD also until the 7th of October. Once things have reopened, then hopefully, again, respecting social distancing, we can kind of go and explore these works physically. Yeah, and jump online because I think in the next couple of weeks, Jeff will probably put up just a short snippet the video is mesmerizing like anyone that has a fascination in the cult of personality or just that idea of kind of performing your old self like that's what it made me think he's performing this this version of himself that happened in the 80s that is no longer him but he has to keep performing this sort of wasted version of himself it's quite fascinating as a as a look at contemporary performance and choreography even so yeah do do check it out and even if you're just a fan of the happy mondays it's it's kind of fascinating too speaking of which i think we might hear a track from the happy mondays 24 hour party people good segue 
Ty, thanks for joining us and thanks for the review. And a reminder that we're talking about Jamie O'Connell's Love Saves the Day at Neon Park, both the Brunswick site and the CBD site on until the 7th of November. You can check out Neon Park with a C, neonpark.com.au for details. Ty, we'll catch you in a fortnight's time. Will do. See you, Richard. Now, while galleries across Victoria are closed, a range of them have been adapting in different ways, presenting archival videos, for example, walkthrough exhibitions and more. At ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, they're presenting a series of lectures, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories 1968 to 1999, taking a, a bit of a deep dive into pivotal moments that have shaped Australian art since 1968. One of the... Well, the latest video in the Defining Moment series explores the exhibition Don't Leave Me This Way, Art in the Age of AIDS, 1994, and is hosted by Dr Ted Gott, the Senior Curator of International Art at the NGV, who at the time was a younger curator living in Canberra. Ted joins us on the line now. Ted, a very good morning to you. Thank you. Now, before we kind of dive into this exhibition in detail, take us back to 1994 when Don't Leave Leave Me This Way, Art in the Age of AIDS was presented at the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra. Having lived through that period myself as a young gay man who'd grown up in country Victoria when the AIDS pandemic hit before moving to Melbourne in the late 80s, this was a fraught period in which homophobia was rife. It seems a pretty audacious move by the NGA to have presented this exhibition at the time uh, and a fairly ballsy move by you to curate it, I have to say. Well, I, I don't know how ballsy I was at the time. I was a, I was a young man, you know, I was 34, a young gay curator of, of Obviously affected both by the impact of HIV AIDS on my community, my social family, but also, of course, experiencing the homophobia of the times. The exhibition is a tribute to the courage of Betty Churcher, then director of the National Gallery of Australia, who responded favourably to my idea to stage a major show. In fact, it was a landmark show. It was the first exhibition at a national gallery in the world anywhere about the difficult topic of HIV AIDS. So Betty ran with it and agreed that it was an important social topic, but most importantly was an exhibition that would contain cracking world-class art addressing crucial social issues. So, you know, it wasn't a social research project, it was above all an art project, but perhaps because of the impact upon HIV AIDS upon the creative arts world, the pandemic produced extraordinary artworks from a whole range of artists across primarily the Western world. How does it feel in 2020 to revisit this exhibition from 1994? To be honest, it was quite difficult because so many of the artists that I was working with at that time, Richard, um, have since passed away. So it was very, very sad, to be honest, to go back and look at it. It was great to revisit some of the beautiful artworks, also some of the more disturbing and confronting artworks. But overall, there was, for me, a kind of a melancholy in just remembering meeting these wonderful artists and feeling so sad that their creativity and vibrance is no longer with us. You've been invited to present this lecture about the exhibition by Max Delaney and the the team at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. It's lovely to see art institutions supporting one another, collaborating with one another. You're at the NGV. ACCA could in some ways be seen as perhaps a rival, but instead we have this video webinar, effectively, in which you're taking us through this landmark exhibition. Talk to us just about the collaboration itself and this whole lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968 to 1999. feels like 
we, particularly in Australia, we have a culture of forgetting that art history, theatre history, so much Australian history is glossed over and eventually relegated to the past. And we're, consequently, we're doomed to perhaps endlessly recreate the past because we don't know about our histories. This lecture series feels significant in that regard. Look, it's highly significant. And look, a great collaboration working with ACCA on this project because ACCA was one of the first galleries in Australia to stage an exhibition on issues surrounding HIV AIDS and the visual arts. They did an exhibition called Imaging in 1989 that predated my own exhibition in Canberra by five years. So wonderful to work with them on looking at the impact of AIDS on art and social life at this time. The lecture series, Defining Moments, is simply extraordinary. It started last year, I believe, and there is now an entire series available on the ACCA website that looks at significant Australian exhibitions from 1968 to 1999, and they're all available for live stream for free. So, you know, I urge all of you listeners to go and have a look. If my talk is not the one for you, there'll be something else there that will hopefully speak directly to you. Now, one of the things that struck me about your talk is that not only do you talk us through the exhibition itself, but you talk us through the cultural and social climate at the time. Were you nervous in terms of presenting this exhibition, knowing or or suspecting that there might have been quite an aggressively homophobic backlash from some of the more conservative elements of the media? for example? Yes, yes, we were. And we approached it, or, you know, the NGA approached it very sensibly and reasonably. There was a great deal of nervousness, it must be said, amongst the staff about staging an exhibition like this and what sort of backlash it might bring, protesters, etc. There were people who were afraid on staff that they might contract HIV AIDS from visitors to the exhibition. So what we did was we brought in our PLWHA Canberra, people living with HIV AIDS Canberra, and we held seminars for all of the staff in which they actually got to meet people living with with HIV AIDS and realised that they were ordinary people and realised that they could not contract the virus by hugging them or shaking their hands, so that was step one. Then the gallery security staff and front of house, etc., were all briefed about how to deal with an incident if, if it burst out because, you know, there were prominent homophobic spokespeople, I don't need to name them at the time, who were very much active in the press, attacking our community and attacking anyone with HIV AIDS as a danger to the so-called general community community as if we weren't part of that ourselves and so the gallery was very much prepared for for protests of any kind and what actually happened was that there was no protest at all there was only one complaint that was staged that was a letter was written three weeks before the show opened by someone who hadn't even seen the show and then during the four-month run of the show there was only one complaint and that was not about the topic or about an exhibition representing gay lesbian bisexual and drug using lives the, the categories that were most likely to contract HIV, then transmitted through bodily fluids. But that viewer was upset by the fact that one of the artworks contained a four-letter word. (laughs) Uh, So we were very pleased at the maturity of the response of the audience. And I think that's because of the way that we carefully orchestrated the exhibition. You know, we didn't go down the path of making it lurid, sensational. The exhibition aimed to educate people. It opened with a section pointing out that HIV AIDS is a virus, not not a person, not a sexual not a lifestyle habit, but simply a virus that anyone could contract. The first gallery of the show aimed to reduce the disease to a virus and to take away people's prejudice that it affected a certain lifestyle or category of person. It aimed to show that everyone with 
HIV AIDS is innocent. There were no guilty people who were more likely to get it than others. Then we went through the impact of AIDS on ravaging the human body as it attacked the immune system. There was then a section about street theatre and the culture of AIDS awareness through posters, T-shirts, the Mardi Gras parade, etc. There was a, a section that could have been very controversial looking at human sexuality and the transmission of AIDS. And then the show closed with rooms that just imaged people who had HIV AIDS themselves. So we wanted visitors to exit the show by looking into the faces of people around the world. And the very last section of the exhibition was Kathy Triffett's self-imaging project in which she handed the camera over to Australians living with HIV AIDS. And they took self-portrait photographs and wrote texts about their diagnosis and their emotional feelings. So people left the show looking at their neighbours. And I think that's clever way, looking back, of orchestrating the show to educate the populace and to confront them with their fears, their prejudices, but then to plead with them to just look into their basic humanity and decency led to people coming out of the show feeling informed, moved and empathetic rather than angry, censorious and judgmental. The fact that, as you say, yes, it's an exhibition which personalised the story of HIV AIDS at a time when people were still frightened about transmission by, as you reminded us, from shaking somebody's hand, for example, uh, is a significant part of it, but also significant the diversity of artists represented in it, from Australian artists such as Exeter Medici, for example, and Ross Watson, works of costume from the Mardi Gras parades, for example, and also the AIDS quilt as well, a deeply personal expression of collective loss. Absolutely. And with the AIDS quilt, we deliberately incorporated a section of panels that were for and made by Australian children living with HIV AIDS, just to make the point that this virus can affect anyone, anywhere, or could at the time. We've got to remember that in 1994, when it was staged, a diagnosis of HIV AIDS was still very much a death sentence, basically. It wasn't until late 95 that the combination of retroviral drugs came in that enabled the medical industry to halt the spread of the virus and to enable people to maintain normal and healthy lives even while being HIV positive. But at this time in 94, it was still very much a climate of fear, of depression and of an uncertain future for anyone who was living with the virus. And by the time that this exhibition was staged, there was something like 20 million people worldwide who were living with the virus. So, you know, it it was... Uh, a truly uh, catastrophic pandemic worldwide. And it was it was very much a climate of fear uh, in many ways. You remember how the press used to promote the fact that, you know, or you might, you might catch AIDS if someone sneezes on you. So, you know, people would look suspiciously at you on the train or the tram if you had a snuffle. You know, I mean, quite extraordinary. And now we're living through a, a, an equally alarming time, of course, with the COVID pandemic in which you actually are at risk if someone <laughs> sneezes on you. <laughs> Yes, uh, we, the, the, we have actually uh, an even an even more highly transmittable pandemic today. The parallel, the the staging of, I guess, the restaging of this exhibition through your conversation, well, your webinar that is hosted at the ACCA website. Yeah, it's a very timely, a very opportune moment to revisit the story of another pandemic from a very different time. The exhibition "Don't Leave Me This Way: Art in the Age of AIDS" it was presented in 1994-95 at the National Gallery in Canberra and curated by Dr Ted Gott. The full lecture that Ted presents is available for free on the ACCA website, acca.melbourne. And not only is it does it talk us through the exhibition, it presents some images and artworks from it as well. Ted, 
in terms of looking back at this exhibition, it's clearly something that you are proud of. Looking back at it also, though, I wonder, do you wish you could have done more or done it differently? Oh, definitely. Yes, absolutely. And as I acknowledge in the opening remarks of the lecture, you know, I was working against a very limited time frame. We had a limited budget. I didn't have much travel opportunity. And it was done before the internet existed in everyone's household and workplace. So I was racing against the clock with limited time. Looking back now, yes, it is regrettable that the exhibition mainly looked at the impact of HIV AIDS on the Western communities. I wasn't able to explore art that was being created in Africa or Asia. And I would love to, you know, if if doing this show now, of course, that would be included as well. But it just wasn't possible at the time. It literally wasn't within my radar. So we did the best we could at the time. But it, it is, it is, you know, regrettably Western-centric looking back. It was certainly fascinating for me having, as I said, grown up as a teenager in the 80s and, and come out just at the start of the AIDS epidemic. It's a fascinating exhibition. I wish I had had the opportunity to see it personally at the time, but that unfortunately was not the case. So fascinating to be able to revisit Don't Leave Me This Way, Art in the Age of AIDS, 1994. Today, as part of the ACCA webinar series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968 to 1999. Dr. Ted Gott's full lecture about the exhibition and its impact is available, as I said, for free on the ACCA website. I don't want to give the end away, but it reduced me to tears, your final comments, Ted, I have to say. So uh, uh, a beautiful way to, to wrap up the exhibition by looking at the way it impacted on people who attended. Thank you, Richard. And that website again, ACCA. A-C-C-A-ACA.Melbourne to see the latest in the Defining Moments Australian Exhibition Histories Lectures. Dr Ted Gott from the NGV, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, for those of us listening right now and living in Melbourne, the last few months have been a time of being locked indoors and sometimes, in some cases, locked away from the people you love. But technology allows us to contact and interact. One of the things technology also allows us to do is play games. Whether you are a fan of the various computer games and graphic games out there, you may have played with a goose, for example, or you may have decided to play Dungeons and Dragons and related games with friends, perhaps via Zoom. The reason I mention this is Melbourne International Games Week is kicking off on Saturday, running through until the 11th of October. And one of the events presented as part of Melbourne International Games Week is the Big Games Night Inn this Sunday, the 4th of October. It's an opportunity to uh, to encourage your friends and, and family to play games of any kind, perhaps board games, which have had a huge renaissance recently, or perhaps to play a fantasy role-playing game, a tabletop role-playing game, which is also definitely we're seeing a huge increase in the number of people playing these kinds of games as well. Joining me on the line from the gaming company Chaosium is Michael O'Brien. Michael, welcome. Hi, Richard. One of the things that people have been saying is that tabletop role-playing games, whether it's Dungeons & Dragons or whether it's games such as those published by Chaosium, such as Call of Cthulhu, they've had a bit of a renaissance Some people are pointing specifically to the TV show Stranger Things, saying that's what kicked it off and brought role-playing games back into the popular imagination. Is that actually the case, or have there been a number of factors in the renaissance of role-playing games? I think there's definitely been a number of factors, but Stranger Things definitely was a case. Now, the kids in that game 
were playing a very popular tabletop RPG called Dungeons and Dragons, which has been around since the mid-1970s. I like to think, because I work for Chaosium, we publish a horror investigation game called Call of Cthulhu. And really, those kids were in a Call of Cthulhu adventure. They just didn't know it. I should declare a quick conflict of interest here. I have written for Chaosium in the past, predominantly in the 90s, so quite a while ago, but I did contribute to a book that was published a couple of years ago. So I, I obviously I have a stake in people playing uh, Chaosium yep. games, but also I, I want more people to embrace the delight and the joy of role-playing games, which is really a form of interactive storytelling, a shared fictional world in which you play the heroes. Is that a good way to describe a tabletop role-playing game? That is an excellent way of describing it. So, yeah, it's a shared experience. It's a shared storytelling experience. And you have a set of rules which help make that experience flow and go along so everyone understands where you are with the story. So different games have different sets of rules. Some of them are more, we use the term crunchy, so the more detail there are in the rules. Some are very free-flowing, but they all scratch that same itch, which is to collaboratively tell a story or an adventure with characters in it. I will say the other thing that I think has really exploded the interest in tabletop role-playing games in recent years is something known as actual play, and that is watching other people play games. And the same thing's happened with video games. You know, people will go onto Twitch TV or YouTube and watch other people play through a video game. Also, people have found it really fun to watch other people playing these tabletop role-playing games. That's something that I initially, sorry to jump in there, but when I heard about this, I was fascinated and and slightly confused because in my heyday of role-playing in the 80s and 90s, the idea of watching somebody else play would be, I was like, why would I do that when I can actually play a game myself? But given that learning the rules of games can sometimes be complex and the idea of then watching other people play as a way of learning the mechanics of the game and the art of collaborative storytelling in this regard, it makes a lot of sense that watching a game on YouTube, watching a game on Twitch is a a really great introduction to the world of tabletop role-playing games. Oh, very, very much so. It's now got to the point, there's probably the most popular or well-known of these actual players is a group called Critical Role, and they're based in the United States, and they they play Dungeons & Dragons primarily. When I was there, I was amazed. I I had the same thoughts of you initially, because I come from role-playing games back in the day too and the idea of watching other people well when i was in la critical role actually had billboards up advertising you know their show and the next screening and things just like a regular tv show so actual play is really becoming just another legitimate form of artistic expression and entertainment i guess you could say and very popular certainly very popular. The stats I've seen on some of the channels have been quite remarkable and as a way, again, of bringing people into the gaming field as well, a a great kind of introduction to that. So for the big games night in, for people who perhaps live on their own, just watching an actual play session on Sunday as part of the the big games night in could be one lead in, or playing with your family, or playing on Zoom, 
Zoom, for example. How much gaming have you been doing at the moment during the pandemic <laughs> yourself? And are you using things like Zoom or Gchat yeah. to, to assist with that? Very, very much so. So, I mean, I, I would regularly game with my friends and we'd meet at our house and sit around the table, you know, hence the name Tabletop Gaming. We, have, of course, haven't been able to do that in the last six months or so. So we've, we've successfully transitioned to playing on Zoom and getting together that way. My wife is really into board games. So rather than tabletop games, which are very much theatre of the mind, a board game, of course, you have physical components and a board and things like that. And even that has risen to the challenge of being able to play online because there are things you can use, such as something called Tabletop Simulator, which simulates playing the board games with your friends online. So my, my wife regularly plays her board games still with her friends, just, well, from the comfort of everyone's home. We've certainly seen and a huge the... rise in board games over the last few years as well. Oh, oh, absolutely huge, yeah. Board games, board games have been really huge, and part of it, I think, is the fact that you, can, you don't have to be there with your friends to play it. But, of course, it is a great social activity it's a lot of fun the other thing is think about it this way it's very cheap entertainment because you can get hundreds or even thousands of hours out of playing a board game if it's got lots of replayability and i definitely say that's the same with tabletop rpgs as well and so at the big games night out you can try board games we're going to have the ability to play those online you can play tabletop role-playing games we've got a whole lot of demo sessions for those where you can just sign up and play over zoom and we've also got video games as well and they of course have really exploded recently too and we'll be showcasing so acme is very much involved in this aspect of it We'll be showcasing a whole lot of games by Victorian developers. So Acme's curated, I guess, that digital game sphere for the big games night in. So games such as Necro Barista, which I've been hearing great things about, Terracotta and Dollhouse and more, and then also the tabletop games and tabletop role-playing games. Just before we give the details for Big Games Night In and how people can access it, Michael, as I said, you're involved with the gaming publishing company Chaosium, which has been around since the 1970s and best known for Call of Cthulhu, the Lovecraftian horror in investigative game, as you mentioned. Also, RuneQuest, an epic fantasy world to explore, which has been around for decades as well. For people who need an introduction to the games that Chaosium publish, what's a good way to dip their toe into the water? Well, we actually have a Call of Cthulhu starter set, which is a really good way to introduce you to the game. We had Critical Role do that last year, and we had to put extra staff on in all our warehouses around the world because people had watched it, thought, wow, this is a lot of fun, and wanted to give it a try. But if people are keen to see what Call of Cthulhu is about, in the Big Games Night In, we're running an actual play of a adventure called The Mummy of Pemberley Grange. It's going to be run by Alan Carey of a local creative company called Type 40 that make props and popular culture items. And Alan is a huge Call of Cthulhu fan and is going to be running a live game of Call of Cthulhu on Sunday night. For more information about the games published by Chaosium, www.chaosium.com. So just chaos, the word, and then 
iumchaosium.com to find out more about the games they play. And for more information about Melbourne International Games Week's Big Games Night In, happening on Sunday the 4th of October, in the comfort of your own home, you can find out more by just going to gamesweek.melbourne, where you'll find tips and links on the best and newest games to play, whether those are tabletop role-playing games, traditional board games, or digital and electronic games, as Mob mentioned. Michael O'Brien, thank you very much for joining us here at Triple R. A great pleasure, Richard. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 